Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 25? Jacob, a man of the flesh and of faith. A man of the flesh and of faith. We done part one last week, but we can still carry on without really you being here last week. We can carry on with this message. Let's read Genesis chapter 25 and just let your eye run down for our reading to verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Tell me this day, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And then Jacob said, Esau, pardon me, then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, as we go through your, your word now, we pray that you would encourage your people and challenge us. Already your spirit has. And so, Father, you would help us to see our need of you in every way. Show us the gospel. Show us saving grace. Show us you, Father, Show us your Son coming to die for us. Show us everything we need, Lord, this morning. Help us to be a grateful people, a people that will honor you, a people that will not go with the flow, Father, but rather swim against the current because, Lord, this world will drag us into different directions, but your Spirit will lead us into all truth. Bring us closer to you. Bring us near you. Because, Lord, we need you at these times. We rely on you and we trust you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at how 
Jacob here, when he's born, grabs Esau's heel. So Jacob means surplanter, heel grabber, heel holder. And when we looked at that name, it gives the idea of who Jacob is to his nature. He was a chancer, in other words. In other words, he lived according to his flesh. I know many people speak of Esau representing the old nature and Jacob the new, but really, that may be okay, but Jacob has old nature too. Jacob is flesh and becomes a man in touch with God. If we look at it here, we've seen last week at the beginning and the ending then was in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21. It speaks of uh, Genesis 48 and verses 12 to 14. Now, we haven't time to go into that. We mentioned it last week, but in Hebrews 11 and 21, it says, by faith, notice, first of all, Jacob is acting in the flesh, grabbing hold of the heel of Esau. But by the time we come across his lifestyle, his testimony, by the time he realizes there is a God in heaven, by the time God comes down in grace and meets with him, now he's in faith. It's the very last mention of him in Hebrews 11 and verse 21. By faith, Jacob, notice what it says, when he was a dying. The, the time you're really going to need your faith most is when you're at that place where the death dew lies cold on your brow. When that clamminess comes to the flesh, the flesh that you've fed all your days long, the flesh that you've allowed to lead you, the flesh that you've lived in, and that flesh will die. It speaks of death. Our flesh is just rotting away every day. An old Puritan says that he's a dying man, man preaching to dying men. And when we think of that, he, he is right. Every day we're, we're dying, as it were, in our flesh, and we will eventually completely die in the flesh. And it's where we are at this point. He sees him in faith. Now we see him, Jacob, in faith. He's still a man in his flesh. You see, the idea is we, we have to understand that we have flesh. We are flesh, and we have struggles. Every one of us have struggles of the flesh. But it's in this life, by faith in this, and the Spirit, we overcome these things. We, in other words, we get the better of them. We live more and more in those times of the Spirit, living to the leading of the Spirit through the Word of God. Jacob here, he is a man of flesh. And now by his finish in Genesis 11, we're told by faith when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship while leaning upon the top of his staff. And if you remember, the idea of a staff is the shepherd's staff, which was full of notches that he, he now as an old man is looking at these notches when we're going to look at a couple of these. We haven't much time, but we're going to look at a couple of these things that happened in his life. And he would have put a notch in. When he met the Lord, he had put a notch in when he was afraid of Esau and the Lord saved him out of it. He had put a notch in. And so now in his last days, when he's still in his flesh and he has, as it were, the death due, that clamminess coming on him, the weakness in his flesh, Jacob, the man of flesh, now looks this heel grabber and he realizes he's met the Lord and he's changed. He's got faith. He's now a man of the Spirit. And what he does is even though he won't see it, even though he can't fully comprehend it and understand it, he is going to prophesy and he's going to impart a birthright. He's going to impart it by faith that the Lord will continue it on even though he dies. And so he looks at the notches in his staff and it increases his faith. 
It increases his, his, his fortitude and his courage in the Lord, and he imparts by faith. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what we're going to need. That's what you'll need and what I'll need. There's a difference when I've sat around bedsides of men and women who have not been saved and have passed into eternity. To those who have known and trusted and loved the Lord and, and they've passed into eternity a different way. I've seen it as I've sat around many a bedside. And the faith is, even though I'm going to pass through the veil, even though I'm going to pass into the valley of the shadow of death, the faith is, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In other words, I know that you're with me and you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Even in the valley, when the death dew is lying cold on thy brow, if ever I've loved thee, oh my Jesus, tis nigh. You think about that. That's a wonderful line that writer put there. Because you and I love him now. How much more are we going to need to know him and love him? See, religion won't count. That's what the Spirit said this morning. I'm not looking for your religion. I'm not looking for clocking on a seat. I'm not looking for this. This is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, you're saying, I'm here. Look, I'm a Christian, but there's no intimate relationship with us. I don't know you. I know you not. Lord, did we not cast out devils and so on? I don't know you. Depart from me. How can the Spirit say that in the church? Because the Spirit will just be justified in all that he says. And Father, the Father will be justified in all that he does. He'll say, I've given you my word. I've called unto you uh, uh, your name, uh, and I've called unto you to worship. And you, you're in the deadness of your heart, you see, you can't. And God is justified in the deathliness of our flesh, which we allow to reign in our lives. God says you can't because you're, well, you're, of, you're Adam's fall. You're the same flesh as Jacob had. And so here we're seeing that Jacob blesses his Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and worships leaning upon the top of a staff. Here's a wee footnote I mentioned last week. Jacob's birth, at Jacob's birth, Jacob grabs a heel to claim the birthright, Esau's heel coming out from the womb. He grabs the heel. But at his death in faith, so in, in the flesh he's grabbing a heel to claim a birthright. I want to be first. But in the spirit now, in the faith when he's dying, He's releasing the birthright by faith. See the difference in the man? You see, when a man and a woman come in contact with Christ, they cannot but be changed. A man and a woman who say, oh, I've got saved, and whatever way they claim they've got saved. And there's no change in their life. There's no desire in their life. There's no overcoming in their life. There's no intimacy with Christ in their life. You can be assured they've never met Christ. Never. can you say you've met the king of glory? How can you say you've had such an experience and an encounter at the foot of the cross and you've seen your need of salvation and washed in the blood and you've seen him bear away your sin and you've realized this and you've felt the weight and of the guilt of your sin lift from you. And then from then you've changed. Didn't say you're perfect. You've changed. There's no man and woman can say that they have met Christ and they're not changed. When Jesus comes into a life, Jesus changes the life. A life that you can't change, he can change. An addiction you can't have broken over you, he can break it. Healing, he can bring healing in the life. 
So we have to remember that this is now a different man. Different man all together. Proverbs 7 and verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And it depends how you end. Better is the, the beginning of a thing than the end thereof. How did you end your life without Christ? How does a man and a woman, better is the end of a thing, pardon me, than the beginning thereof, how did you end your life without Christ? If you've ended your life without Christ, it's not better. You see, the book is being written here to, to the God's people. And he's saying, if you're one of mine, then your life is even better when it's ending. Imagine that. Imagine that. Then he goes on to say in Proverbs 7 and 8, and the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. So the better is to be patient in spirit than proud in spirit. And sometimes the flesh wants what we would call the pound of flesh. We want our vengeance. And so what do we do? We do everything we can to get our own back. Everything that we can do or say to try and win the case. And the Lord says, you know, if you're patient in your spirit, you need to do nothing. Because I'll fight those battles. And you'll see that in Jacob's life. Jacob was a man who ran, tried to get things and take them into his own hands. And he failed in every account. But when the Lord stepped in, things changed. Things changed. It's learning to be patient and waiting on God. Notice this. Genesis 25 and verse 23. Genesis 25, verse 23 says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations, that is Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now Esau was a man who was strong. When you think about this, Esau was the firstborn, the man who was strong with the birthright. And because he was the firstborn, born with the birthright, he had the strength, as it were, of his father. He had the strength of Isaac. He had the strength of, of being born first. Everything was falling to him, and now so Jacob and his flesh tries to grab hold of it. But the promise wasn't to Esau. My brothers and sisters, you and I need to grasp this for things in our life. The promise wasn't to Esau. The promise was to Jacob. So note this tells me, even before he was born, God had a promise for Jacob. Even before he was born, even though he tried to grab the heel of Esau, even though he tried to take it into his own hands, God already had it ordained that Jacob would be uh, the, the chosen seed line. Jacob didn't even know it, and God had chosen it. Jacob couldn't even speak his first words yet and God had it already planned out. And what is it we try and do sometimes when we say, Lord, are you, uh, do you know what's happening to me? Do you understand what's going on in my life? Where is it that we are whenever we say these things and God says, do you know I've had a plan for you for before you were even born? Before you could speak a word? 
Before you could say anything coming even from your mother's womb, do you realize that I knew you and loved you and had a plan for you? And our flesh says, Lord, I know that, but I'm not too sure of it. God had a promise. God had a plan for Jacob. He needed to let the Lord work it out. He had already foreordained it that Jacob the younger, who grabbed the heel of Esau, would receive the promised blessing. Listen, brothers and sisters, God has a great plan for you. And no matter what you're facing, do you hear me? Please, don't only hear me, hear the word of God. No matter what you're facing, no matter the difficulties, no matter the trials, no matter the upset, no matter the hurt, no matter the disappointment, no matter the disillusionment, no matter what you are facing, understand this, brothers and sisters, God knew you from before the foundation of the world, and he had a promise for you and has a plan for you. And he'll work it out. Don't be discouraged. and Don't let it get the better of you. Don't let it drag you down. Don't let it make you depressed. Don't be getting disillusioned, but rather face the Lord and focus your eyes on him, and you'll see what he will do for you. Our God is bigger than me, and he's bigger than you. Our God is bigger than this church or this assembly, this Elam. It's bigger than every, he's bigger than all. He's bigger than the universe. And yet he knows you, and he loves you, and he says, I have a plan for you. I have a plan for you. You can say this morning, Father, thank you, because I am. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for me. His ways are not my ways or your ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts, because they're higher than ours, and we cannot attain unto them. Let God work his own planet. Here's some things, three, three quick points about what has happened and about the promise being in Jacob. Three quick points. First of all, flesh does not comprehend the things of the Spirit. Notice this. Flesh does not comprehend the things of the Spirit. Jacob is in his flesh, and he cannot comprehend through his life the things of the Spirit. He's a twister. He's a heel grabber, a surplanter. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, listen to what Paul says. Romans 8 and 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. No, Paul's saying, if a man and a woman live in the flesh, that's all they're going to know. Listen, even if we're getting advice, it's good to have people you can get advice from. Even if someone's giving you, you're giving someone a listening ear, they can fill your head full of nonsense. And if you let your ear become a a garbage can, a a bin, you're going to get your head full of rubbish. And that flesh, that which they're spewing out, will soon fill you. And you'll think rubbish. Stinking thinking, as someone once put it. You'll think nonsense. You'll think the worst. And you'll form an idol of it you'll form something about that person that someone has filled your head with. Or that thing, or that circumstance. 
Now notice this. They that are of the flesh, they cannot mind the things of the flesh. Do you remember in John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus, Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he tells him about being born again. John chapter 3 and verse 3 says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. And Nicodemus is a, a, a Pharisee. He should know all these things. But he's so religious-minded, and he's so caught up with what other rabbis have taught. You see, when they came to Jesus and they said about the Lord Jesus, never man spake like this man. The idea was that they used to copy each other's writings, all the rabbis, and take from them and add little bits and twist from it. But they used to hold that teaching in line with the Word of God. And it wasn't the Word of God, it wasn't the inspired Word. And so when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority and with clarity and with power. And when he spoke, people heard and they listened, and people were changed because they were challenged. And if there's no challenge in the life, if a preacher, a teacher of God's Word, does not challenge you, you'll never change you. And it's not being changed to be conformed into anyone or anything else, but being changed and conformed into the image of Christ. So when Jesus speaks, they said, never man speak like this man. Because of the authority, he brought the word of God to them. So when Nicodemus comes, he should have known, and he doesn't know. And Jesus says, he says, how can a man be born after a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? I don't understand this. I'm paraphrasing for time. And the Lord Jesus says to him, are you a ruler in Israel and you don't know these things? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, we're all flesh, but only those who are born from above, born from the Holy Ghost. And you need to get this because I trust all of us. I trust all of us have had the experience of being born from above. He says in John chapter 3 and verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into. First of all, he says in John 3 and 3, see the kingdom. He can't perceive it. There's no Spirit in him. But then he says, and except he be born of water and of the Spirit, or except a man be born from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then, of course, in verse 7, John 3 and 7, he says, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. I trust we're all born again. I trust we've had this experience. But listen, our ending, as it says in Proverbs 7 and 8, our ending will depend whether it's a good ending or a bad ending, whether it be today or 100 years' time, if the Lord should tarry, and I pray he doesn't. But nevertheless, whenever that ending will be, it's how we end when the death dew lies cold on our brow. It's how we finish the race. Do we finish it in Christ? Do we finish it in love with him? Serving him? How would you finish the race? Now I know we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. But maybe there's some here who have a religious experience and not a born-again one. 
Don't ask me why. I'm, I haven't even got this in my notes. I'm, I'm bringing this because of what the Spirit has spoken. It's laid heavy on me now to bring this. And sometimes in our flesh, we want to try and comprehend the things of the Spirit, and we cannot. We must seek God and ask His Word on it. Ask His leading on it. Secondly, quickly, we must understand God is sovereign, and His will shall be done. God is sovereign, and His will shall be done. Now, the word sovereign can be a bad word in some Christian circles, because we like to say, oh yes, God is sovereign, but only when he works through me or through this or through that. No, no. Or only when he does things my way. God is sovereign, full stop. Nothing can be taken away, nor is there anything to be added to the sovereignty of God. Do you know what that means? He's in charge all the time over all things. So Jacob should have realized then when he's getting older God is sovereign. Obviously, I've been told by my grandfather Abraham, and now my father Isaac, surely he should have known with the building of altars and him traveling around and them worshiping Yahweh, the God, the, the God of Adam, who, who, who Adam sinned before. Surely he should have known something, that God was sovereign, but he's already a heel grabber, you see. You know what this tells me? That in our nature, we're already the prey of the grabs, even as a baby. Ah, but babies hadn't sinned, no, but they're born little sinners. They're born little sinners. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are one. It's a difference. So God is sovereign and his will be done. Listen to Romans chapter 9. You can either flick to it or listen to it or jot it down. Romans 9, verses 21 to 23. Listen to what Paul writes. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? <laughs> now, this is strong. This is strong, Paul. You're telling me there are those who are of honor to God and there are those who have dishonor and God has the power to change them all, but he doesn't. He's the potter. We're the clay. Paul says, yes. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Then he says in verse 22, what if God willing to show his wrath? Now listen, this isn't me talking. This is Romans 9 and 22. What if God willing to show his wrath to make his power known? Now there's a lot of churches maybe won't want to read that this morning. God willing to show his wrath to make his power known. Do you know God's glory is also in his wrath? People think God's glory is only in his love. People think God's glory is only in his kindness and his compassionate goodness. No, God's glory is also in his holy wrath. Many people aren't understanding this. They think it's, you know, waft to heaven in a handbasket. Rather, they're going rather to hell in a handcart. God's glory is shown in his wrath to make his power known. Notice, endured with much long suffering the vessels fitted to destruction. I trust there's no vessels here fitted to destruction. I'm not here to scare you. I know this is 
this is meat you're getting now. This is deeper stuff than the usual. And I try and bring a little bit at a time to you for someone to, for you to chew on something. But Paul is saying that there are vessels that God would show his wrath, but he gave in his long-suffering time. Think of Pharaoh. He talks about him later. You know why he says this? I'll tell you why he says this. Because on the day when men will stand before God and all the secrets of men's hearts are made known before Christ, on the day when every one of us stand before him and every idle word that we have spoken will be made account of, will be accountable for it. On the day when the unsaved stand at the great white throne judgment and are pronounced guilty as charged for breaking the law of God and not coming to Christ, on that day God will be justified when he sends them to a devil's hell. God will be justified. In other words, what we are saying here, what I should say the scriptures are saying here to us, God held back in love. God's wrath was like a dam about to burst and explode out and spew out all the wrath that it was against the Christ rejecter and the sinner, the depraved nature. But he held back and he held back and he held back and he held back and he held back until... Their cup was filled and he showed his glory and his wrath. How did he do that? Well, he showed the plagues in Egypt. And when he showed the plagues in Egypt, he was still holding back. He was warning. Then there came the firstborn being slain and they went out via the blood of the lamb. Then came the waters coming in upon them when their hearts were really being shown forth. That's what they were. Pharaoh ended up hardening his own heart. But God knew it was in his nature. Notice what it says in verse 23, Romans 9, 23, that he might make known. Now, for you who are saved, I trust we all are. I mean saved. I don't mean religious. I think we've touched on that. I mean saved by sovereign grace through faith. Trusting solely, uniquely, totally, only, completely on the blood of Jesus and his finished work on the cross of Calvary, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Trusting completely in Christ alone, who have been born from above. This isn't let's walk up an aisle and kneel down and I'll say a wee prayer if you want to better your life. That is not salvation. Salvation is an experiential encounter with Christ at the cross. Seeing yourself as a sinner without hope, then seeing Christ as your Savior, your only hope. Receiving him, believing in him, and his spirit living in you. Notice what it says, verse 23, that he might make known. 
the riches of his glory. I think this is beautiful. The riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. God working in your life is preparing you for his kingdom. God, through his word, changing your life is preparing you for heaven. God working through you every day, he's getting you ready should his son come or he calls. And so God is showing the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Can I ask you something and you can answer yourself, are you a vessel of mercy? Brother, sister, are you a vessel of God's mercy? Are you a vessel of God's mercy? If you're saved, you're a vessel of God's mercy. If you're religious and not saved, you're not a vessel of God's mercy. But if you hear his voice and heart, you can be a vessel of God's mercy. Now, those who will live their lives before God and answer for every bit of it, and God will say, where are you with me? What have you done with my son who has given his life for you? Thirdly and finally, time is gone. Man's carnal efforts cannot and will not be able to lay hold on God's promises to bring them to pass. I'll say it again. Man's carnal efforts cannot and will not be able to lay hold on God's promise to bring them to pass. Esau, pardon me, Jacob grabbed Esau's heel, but he never prevailed. Esau grabbed, or pardon me, Jacob grabbed Esau's heel, but he never prevailed. He couldn't bring God's promise into being. It's all in God's order and in God's time. In Galatians chapter 4, listen to what it says. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. This is the Lord Jesus obviously being born at Bethlehem of Mary. The fullness of time. What fullness of what time? Do you ever wonder that? Fullness of what time? I haven't, I haven't time to go into it now. But you mark Daniel chapter 9. The promise of the Messiah to come. That's the time. 40, 69 weeks. A time of 69 weeks came and Christ entered the scene. Died in the midst of... I know people talk about the 70th week as a way to come sometime in the future. Listen, the 70th week has already happened. It's already happened. When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son at the end of 69 weeks, prophetic weeks from Daniel chapter 9. When God said it, he meant it, and he performed it. He did it in his timing. What are you waiting on? We're waiting on God's timing. We're waiting for God to unravel that which he has planned in our lives. We're waiting on God to reveal himself more in our situation. We're waiting on God and his timing. And so if you read Daniel 9 and you go home, you'll, you'll see that. And the 70th week was already when the, uh, Daniel uh, tells us under inspiration that the Messiah will be cut off and not for himself in the midst of that week. Christ died a week of seven days, seven prophetic years. 
in the last week of years, the 70th week, in the middle of it, three and a half years into his ministry, three and a half is half of seven, Christ died on the cross. Christ died on the cross. And so when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. God didn't send forth his son before that. And Ephesians 1 and 10 speaks of a future time to come that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ which are both in heaven which are on earth even in him. Brothers and sisters, when we go through the story, I may do the third part of this next week. I don't know. I'll see. When we go through the story of Jacob, we see a man of flesh. He sees the Lord in that stairway to heaven. God is at the top of it. Read it. God is at the top of the ladder. The Lord is standing on the top from heaven, as it were, in the vision, looking down, and the angels are ministering up and down. Jacob is at the bottom, and it shows you where we are in our flesh. We are no, no higher than the, we're lower than a snake's belly, as someone once put it. We're on the ground. Jacob's on the ground. He's lying down. And when he's lying down, he can't get any lower unless he's buried in the ground. But as alive to his flesh, until that happens, he's six foot above the ground, as we would say. But it shows who we are in our nature. And Christ is high and lifted up. And we see him at the top of the ladder. And what's next? He comes down the next time. And he wrestles with him. You know what that shows me? Grace. Grace is God coming to you and I and saving us who were unworthy. He makes him a man of faith, from flesh to faith. And even through his struggles, he's still a man of faith. He is a man of the Spirit. And then the last we read in Hebrews 11, by faith. When he was a dying, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship while laying upon the top of his staff. He died well because of his encounters with Christ. I don't know whether to do another part next week or not. I just, that was just in my mind and I've went away off because I just felt the Spirit lead me different this morning. Now, Christian, here's the thing. From the Spirit speaking to this, be encouraged that if you're a vessel of mercy, he's preparing you for the kingdom. Even through trials and troubles and tribulations, he's preparing you for heaven. He's making you to be like his son. God bless us all tonight, this afternoon.